according to Luke 19, part 3, spoken by Pastor Peter on. Good morning, Metro. And good morning to all those in the nursery and to online community. Just want to warm, warmly welcome you here to our church on the Sunday, cold Super Bowl Sunday. You guys excited about the Super Bowl? All right, all right. We'll get to that. We'll get to that a little later. All right, we'll get to that a little later. But anyway, have you guys ever had to do something where you knew that if you did this, there would be some consequences? That perhaps maybe a sever of relationship might occur? Have you ever, have you ever had to deal with that? Perhaps maybe confront a friend that who has hurt you? Maybe they've done something to you, said something to you, and you need to confront them, but you know that that confrontation could have some ramification. Maybe you're a boss and you have to fire somebody that you really do like, but they're not, just not performing well. And you know that that confrontation is just not going to be good because it's going to make you feel bad. Or maybe with your parents. Maybe you have to tell them that you're going to pursue a whole different career path, that they invested a lot of money for you to pursue a certain career path, but now you're going to go a different way. And you know that might have ramifications. Or maybe you tell your parents, I'm going to marry somebody I know you don't approve of, but I'm going to get married to that person. And so you just, that kind of actions, I don't know about you, but it's just very hard for me to do. And many years ago when I first married my wife, uh, probably about four, into, four, four months into our marriage, uh, I felt like God was really calling us into ministry. My wife concurred and we already set plans to move out to California. We told my parents, they were extremely supportive of it. That wasn't the hard thing, but the hard thing was to tell my father-in-law, who's not a Christian. And he gave me his permission to marry his daughter because he believed that I would continue to work in the television news industry. He thought I had a good salary, so it was good enough. His, his, da- his daughter was going to be well cared for. And four months into our marriage, we were so newlyweds, we just felt like God was calling us this way. I knew it wasn't going to go very well. I was afraid he was going to curse me out or maybe throw a chair at me or get violent with me. I, mean, I was just anticipating the worst thing because two years before that, about a year and a half before that, his oldest daughter got married and, uh, and she moved to Michigan. And it caused a lot of trauma in the family to lose their sister, their daughter, because their, their family was so close together. And now I was going to tell him, I'm going to quit my job, become a pastor, move out 3,000 miles away to California. And so we had to do it. I had to confront him and tell him this. And so we went to dinner, enjoyed a great dinner, went to the family room and ate the typical Korean dessert, which is pretty much apples and any kind of fruits. And we enjoyed our fruits. And during that time, I was shaking in my boots. I was trembling. And I finally said to him, I said, Dad... I want to let you know that um, I feel led to be a pastor. I'm going to quit my job and we're going to move out to California because I need to go to school out there. And I was just waiting for him to get angry, to start yelling at me. But that was anything but his emotions. He looked at me and he said, I'm going to share with you what I think. That's a horrible decision. And he told me why. He said, there are enough churches in this area. We don't need any more churches and any more pastors. But he said, but you're an adult. You're a man. And he said, you make the decision on your own. I got in the car with my wife. We gave each other high fives. I'm like, I'm still alive. Thank God he didn't kill me. And that for me was kind of like a defining moment. I learned a lot about myself that day through my actions. I really did. I knew that if, as long as I can be courageous, and courage doesn't mean that, you know, you feel really great. Courage is about even you shaking in your boots and, and confronting something that you know you have to. I learned so much about myself through my actions that day. Today we're going to look at Luke chapter 19, the end part of that chapter. 
and we're going to focus on the actions of Jesus and what we're going to learn from this is we're going to learn well, who God is through his actions. One of the best things I learned in seminary many years ago was my professor said, every act of Jesus will teach you something about God. He says, if you ever want to gain a robust theology of God, don't just read the Old Testament and the Paul letters. He says, no, just focus on the actions of Jesus and you will gain a robust, vibrant theology of the God who created you and me. And, you know, a lot of us, we have Bibles that have red letters of Jesus, which just covers his words. I wish there was a Bible that had like the blue letters of Jesus, which focused on his actions so that we can unpack some powerful theological truths about him. You and I both know action speaks much louder than words, don't you? We don't like it when people talk all the time and they can't support it through their actions. Well, today you're going to look at a passage of scripture with Jesus. And in this, we're going to see four particular actions of Jesus that's going to teach us something so deep about who God is that's going to force you and I to make a decision. The decision is simply this. Will you follow God wholeheartedly or will you reject him? That's the only options God gives us today. I wish I could say, you know, you can do the maybe thing or just like I'll give God a little bit. But today, because we're going to learn some major truths about God, we have to ask ourselves, will we follow him wholeheartedly or will we reject him? And that's what God is going to encourage you and I to make a decision today. And I hope that as you engage with this, that all of us in this room, we would give our lives to God wholeheartedly again today. And so before we get started, let's just bow our heads for a moment of prayer. God, we really do come to you today. And, um, and I ask that you would speak deeply to our hearts. I pray that you would preach in a powerful way, God, that this would be your words and not mine. And I pray, God, that as we learn about you, Lord, God, that all of us in this room would be broken. And, God, that we'd be so openly, eagerly willing to give all of ourselves to you, to follow you wholeheartedly. And so I pray for those in this room, God, wherever they may be, uh, especially for those in this room that might have come and, you're, and they're lost. For those in this room that are bitter because there's some things going on in life. For those that feel deeply hurt and wounded by broken relationships, God, whatever it might be, I pray that you would really speak and minister to them today. And so I pray that the words that come out of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts in this room would be pleasing unto you. And all of God's people said, amen. Amen. Well, the first thing, if you have your Bible, start with me in Luke chapter 19. And the first thing we learn from Jesus' actions is that Jesus teaches us that God is faithful. God is faithful. Turn with me to verse 28. And if you have a pen with you, it's good to uh, make sure you bring it with you. Because there's a particular theological word I want, you to, I want you to actually underline here later on. All right, verse 28. Here's what it says. After Jesus has said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there. No one has ever written, untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it, say the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus threw their cloak on the colt and put Jesus on it. And as he went along, people spread their cloak on the road. Now, when you read something like this today in 2018, you realize it's kind of weird. Jesus is kind of telling them to go and to take somebody else's uh, cult and use it for his own purposes. That's, what do we call that today? Stealing, right? 
It's stealing. It's kind of like breaking the law. But in the first century, this was totally normal. It was normal that when a dignitary entered into a city, that they were allowed to borrow whatever they wanted. They could borrow any livestock, any horse, any regal, you know, steed if they will. If they wanted to, all they had to say was is that this person needed it. And that was good enough excuse for the owner of this animal to give and to lend to the person or this dignitary. Jesus qualifies as a dignitary. And so he gives instructions to his disciples to go and to get the colt. And you and I both know what kind of cult this is. If you read the other parts of the Gospels, this cult is a donkey. Jesus enters into Jerusalem, not sort of like within an, a royal entrance. He enters into Jerusalem on a donkey. What a humble servant he is. But what do we learn from this? We learn that Jesus was being faithful. He went to Jerusalem on a cult. He was heading towards his crucifixion. He was only days away from his crucifixion. And Jesus was still faithful to God. He got on his faithful steed, entered into Jerusalem because he was faithful to God. Think about this for a moment. Think about if you knew you were going to die soon. And this was part that you were marching into. He was marching into his death. Would you be faithful? I mean, it was, I was shaking in my boots just telling my father-in-law I'm going into ministry and quitting my job. Could you imagine knowing that you're going to die soon and this was part of you being faithful to God? What do we learn from that action of Jesus? We learn that he's faithful. But what that teaches us about God is that our God is truly faithful. Metro Community Church, do you believe today that your God is faithful? Amen. Amen? Do you believe that your God is truly faithful in your lives? Some of you disagree with me because there was a desired outcome that you wanted God to help you with that didn't happen. And so you struggle with this many times. You wonder whether God really loves you or not. Whether God is truly faithful because there were certain things that you would hope that God would help orchestrate in your life so that you could receive certain things so that certain people potentially could be healed, could be delivered so that you can maybe get a job or certain things like that. And you wanted that to happen and yet you did, it didn't happen that way. And so you are at a place today where you question the very faithfulness of God in your lives. You question that. But our God is truly faithful we find that he's a God, even in this passage with, with, with Jesus, that he's fulfilling the very prophecy of Zechariah 9.9. Where if you ever get a chance, read it. Because it's the triumphal entry to the T. It says, look at your king who enters into the city in a donkey. You're a humble servant. Our God is truly faithful. And I want you to know that the faithfulness of God that he provides for us today isn't necessarily having different outcomes happen or outcomes that you wish could happen in your life. That doesn't determine God's faithfulness. What determines God's faithfulness is that he's ever present with you in life. No matter how difficult your life gets, that as you go through the ups and downs of life, especially as you go through the doldrums of life, that God will be there with you. See, that's the faithfulness of God. He's offering you his presence, a relationship to connect with you in that way. Why is that not enough for you? Why do we want more than just a relationship with God? Why isn't it enough just to be in a relationship with God? Why can't that determine God's faithfulness today in our lives? Do you know we live in a broken world? Can you say amen to the fact that we live in a broken, sinful world? Amen. 
And because of that, Metro, you need to know that because we live in a broken, sinful world, we will go through broken and we will experience the sins of other people upon us. It's just part of it. Why do you think that God is not faithful when you experience the brokenness of what this world is all about? Why do you question the very faithfulness of God? Because the faithfulness of God is created in those times when you are in the doldrums of your life and God is ever present with you, holding your hand, giving you the strength to endure. That's the faithfulness of God. That he teaches you that. But for so many of us, we always link it to stuff. We want stuff. And if we don't get the stuff, then we don't think God's faithful. Man, have we fallen what it means to be a follower of Jesus? Do you think Jesus was feeling it? Going into Jerusalem? Do you think that, that entrance that he was going in, do you think he was feeling that? He didn't want to do it. But he knew God was with him. And he said, I'm going to be faithful. Metro, do you believe that your God is faithful today? Do you truly believe that within your heart? Well, if you do, and I hope you do now, why can't we be faithful to him? Why can't we begin to start seeing faithfulness as something that we value in our lives. You see, for Jesus, being faithful to God was a premium in his life. And no one can be as faithful as Jesus because he was also God and he was perfect. God knows you're going to fail in your faithfulness to him. But why can't we hold it as a premium in our lives? Why can't it be the thing that we value the most in our lives, that we do the very best to follow God no matter what, that we obey him to the, to the end? Why can't we do that? You see, for us, when you think about obedience and, and being faithful to God, we don't do that so that God can accept us. No, we do that because God's already accepted us. That he's already embraced you as his son, as his daughter to the king of kings and lord of lords. And so because we've been accepted now, we should be faithful to him. That's why Jesus was faithful to the end. Why? He wasn't doing the things he did. He didn't enter into Jerusalem knowing that in just a few days he would be crucified. He didn't do that so that God can accept him. He did it because God already did accept him. And so when you think about obedience and faithfulness, don't do it because you think God needs to accept you. He's already accepted you. It's about you getting to a place in your lives where you will say, God, because you've accepted somebody like me, I'm going to be faithful to you. And the best way for you to be faithful to God, the best way for you to do that today, don't trust your emotions. Don't let your emotions dictate God's faithfulness in your life and you being faithful to him. If you trust your emotions, you guys are in some big trouble. Because our emotions will take us all over the place. We go all over. And the problem with our generation today, especially for you young people and even the old, it's all of us. We're so emotional. And because we're emotional, if we don't feel like engaging with God, we don't do it. We just don't. We only want to engage with God when we feel it emotionally. Well, what happens when you don't want to engage with God? What happens when God does disappoint you and you're hurt by some of the things that maybe is happening in your life? The challenge is will you still be faithful? See, those Christians who've been able to sort of get out where they can put their emotions on the side and they can still try to strive their lives, live their life, to be faithful to God, those are the ones who will move forward and experience the beauty and the grace and the shalom that God wants to offer you and me. 
But if you trust your emotions, you're headed to a real, real dark place. Because your emotions are evil. Your emotions many times will lead you to dance with the devil. And you don't want to dance with the devil. Because you do that, it's a dance that might not end well. Amen? When you and I are faithful to God, we are affirming the very image in which God created us with. What is that? He created us in his image, didn't he? The very character of who God is, that he is a faithful God. And when we can start living out the faithfulness and we try to be faithful to God, we are affirming the very image in which God created us with. Him. I just want to encourage you guys, don't give up. I know you guys go through the ups and downs and the doldrums of life. Don't give up. Engage and fight even when you don't feel like it because there's something beautiful that comes out of that kind of engagement with God. Something beautiful. A few months ago, uh, we got word uh, from Africa. We support an organization out there called Zamele. We love what God's doing in Zamele. Uh, we've been intimately connecting with them for the past 10 years. A good handful of you have actually been there before as well. And I just want to encourage you. I know life gets busy. I know sometimes there are a lot of things that get involved in our lives and we kind of forget. But can I just encourage you not to forget what's going on there and to keep praying. And I think for a lot of you, when you did go out there, God did something in your heart. Gave your heart for Zulu people that you thought you could never love. But he did. Don't forget. I think there's parts where God's heart grieves because... We forget so easily, right? Don't forget because God's doing some amazing work there. Well, two months ago we got a call from Audrey. Audrey is the executive director of Zamele and, uh, in South Africa. And basically um, she said that somebody had called her and threatened to kill her. Well, when you get a call like that, initially I think we respond like, ah, they're just, it's just somebody's prank calling me. It's, it's just a prank call. She didn't really think much of it. So she just kind of put it in the back of her mind. But about two weeks ago, Angie, our executive director here in, in, in Zamela, USA, she comes into my office and, she, and uh, Audrey had gone back to Zambia, which is her home country, and I think one of her siblings had gotten married. She was there for a few weeks. She came back home. She got in her Zamela vehicle to go to the office to work that day. And she said the brakes weren't working very well. She was struggling to stop. So she brought the car into the Toyota dealer. They jacked it up. They looked at it. And they told her to come. They said, this is not wear and tear. Somebody, somebody deliberately cut your brakes because they were trying to kill you. And he just said, they just didn't know where the real brakes were because they just cut off your ABS. They didn't cut off your brakes. If they cut that off, you might have not survived. Well, that threat was real. And so Angie comes, tells me about that. I said, we got to start praying. And so I talked to her and I said, hey, uh, how are you doing? What are you going to do? Because when something like that, she's got two kids, she's got a husband, it's a lot. And she said, well, she said, Peter, I am not going to listen to my emotions. Because my emotions are telling me to go back home to Zambia, get out of South Africa. She said, God called me to do this and I'm going to be faithful to the end. And I'm going to do it. See, that's faithfulness. That's affirming your identity and being created in God's image. That's growing in deep character. Now, I didn't just say, well, then good luck. You know, we'll just keep praying for you. Because I think some Christians do that a lot. She needs a little more than just prayer. I said, can we hire 24-hour security for you so that somebody's watching over you and making sure that nobody's going to try to take your life? And so she has that now. 
And we're grateful. And just please pray for Zameli. Pray for her and her safety, her family's safety. Kualani is also probably on the list as well. So just pray that God will protect them. But that's faithfulness, guys. That you just, like, in the flesh and emotionally, you just want to disengage. Saying, I love this thing. I love what God's calling me to do. But I ain't going to die for it. That's faithfulness. What is God calling you to be faithful to today? Really. What is he calling you to be faithful to? Will you do it? Will you begin to do it? Will you stop trusting in your emotions and just be faithful to your God? Let it be a high premium in your life. The second thing we learn about, about God, we learn from Jesus that God loves to be worshipped. God loves to be worshipped. Check this out, verse 37. When he came near the place where the road goes down, the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in a loud voice for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace, underline that word peace or circle it. In heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, if they keep quiet. The stones will cry out. I love this. Man, it's just like one of those, drop the mic, Jesus. Man, just, uh, teach those Pharisees a lesson. Right? How dare they say stop. You see, what the disciples were declaring was blasphemy. Right? Because Jesus was just the man. And they certainly didn't believe that he was the Messiah or he was the king. And so they said, Jesus, stop it. Tell them to stop it. And Jesus just absorbing it because he knows he's going to die soon. Just living in that moment, loving to be worshipped. says, if they don't worship me, these stones will. These stones will. Our God loves to be worshipped. Parents, you know this. Remember when your kids were like really young? They were tiny. Like, you know, before they were like 10, before they were teenagers. And used to come home. Dads, oh, come on. You know when you come home? Man, I had three kids. Go home. I mean, I, I have three kids. Not I had three kids. I have three kids. <laughs> My goodness. What's going on with me? I had three kids. And when they were young and little, I would come home, open that door. I felt like a Hollywood celebrity. Ah, jump up and down, grab me by the leg, up in there just celebrating me being there. And as a father, I loved it. It didn't matter what kind of day I had, how hard the day was. Because they were like worshiping me, I was so happy. It was such a joy for me. It didn't matter what kind of day I had at the office. As soon as I pulled into the parking lot, got upstairs, opened the door, I knew they were just going to all run down and just hug on me and love on me. Now I'm lucky if I even get a stare when I come home. All right? <laughs> they don't even look at me sometimes. Hey, Dad. And they walk upstairs. I'm like, what's up? It's because you're older doesn't mean you can't jump around. Right? God loves to be worshipped, Metro. Jesus loved it. He told them, he said, this is an indictment on us. He's saying, if you don't worship me, these stones will. It's your choice. You ever think about God's love language? You always think about God. Can you, like, start stroking my love language? Hook me up with some stuff? What's, you know, God has a love language, and it's worship. When his people come together like this, not, I mean, you can worship at home, but when you come together like this, we are gathered together. And when we sing songs to God and we worship, we are declaring him as our father, as our king. And we are surrendering ourselves to his lordship. That's what worship is all about. And that's what God wants you and I to see. And he wants you to see that when we come together on Sundays, that this is a sacred time with God. 
It really is. It's a sacred time with him. And so I want to encourage you to see that, please. Don't just come here thinking, okay, what am I going to get from God today? Let's go, God. Come on, let's see. Come on, I need my heart to get stirred a little bit. I need to get excited about you. I need to get passionate. Is Catrice on today? Like, what's going on? Is Peter on today? I need to hear from you, God. That's not the mentality that you need to come with. You were to come here saying to yourself, what can God get out of me today? That's the heart of a Christian disciple. And that's the heart that you and I need to have. And so can I encourage you that when you come here on Sundays, this is sacred time for you. So prepare yourself even before you get here at home and prepare your heart to worship God. Read Luke chapter 19 before you get here. Prepare your heart and say, God, how are you going to speak to me through this? And God, help me to worship you in spirit and in truth. And don't come late. Listen, I know things happen. Kids get angry. You know, you fight with your spouse before you get to church and stuff like that. I know things like that happen and occasionally sometimes we're late. That happens. But can I just be very real with you today? When you are perpetually late to church every Sunday, you don't know what it means to worship God. You don't see this as a sacred time. That you get to honor God and allow him to bask and smell the sweet fragrance of your worship. You deny him that right. You do. So take this time seriously. Prepare your hearts. Get here on time. And don't come here thinking, okay, what can I get from God? This is about you, what you can give to God here. And the best way for you to give to him is to worship him in spirit and in truth. Amen? Some of you are like, well, how do I worship God? You know how to worship God. Stop lying to me. If you're not worshiping God, you're worshiping something else. You really are. We were created to worship. So you don't need a manual to know how to worship God. You just do. I mean, today's a Super Bowl. Any Philadelphia fans here? Where's Sean? Sean Lee. There you are. I mean, I feel so bad for you. I mean, they've never won a Super Bowl. The team has never won a Super Bowl. And do you think, like, Philadelphia fans, they've been preparing two weeks for the Super Bowl. They're going to wear their Eagle jerseys. I dare you to watch it at 7.30. It starts at 6.30. I dare you to turn it on an hour late, see what happens. No, you're going to turn it on way earlier than that. You're ready. you got the party going right now. And you're thinking, my team might win today. And if they start winning, oh, my goodness, jubilation, the joy that you're going to have. Some of you may even cry. <laughs> Seriously. You may even cry. Because you have never won a Super Bowl. Right? You've never won a Super Bowl. So you might even get a little teary-eyed. You know how to worship. You may not be worshiping God, but you know how to worship. Some of you are willing to stand hours in the cold for tickets to certain artists. Right? You prepare yourself to go to those concerts. Do you go there late? Some of you are willing to stand in line for hours so that you can get there earlier. You prepare yourself. You prepare your heart to worship this person who's going to sing some of these songs that you so love. You're going to wear their t-shirts. You can do whatever you can to enjoy this time. You're certainly not going to show up late because you know how to worship. We just all know how to do this. You don't have to be taught. It's just about you coming with this mentality and saying, God, I'm going to honor you. I'm going to give you my life by singing these songs because I know at the end, God, this truly pleases you. If you love God, you would want to do things that also please him. If you love someone, you naturally want to do things that will please them as well. That's what it means to be a follower of God. And what we learn here from Jesus' action, when he was walking into Jerusalem, when he was riding into Jerusalem, and they were worshiping him, he received it 
administer to him because he knows he's going to have to die soon. God loves to be worshipped. And you can bring joy to his heart today if you're willing to worship God. The third thing we learn from God, now it gets a little tough, is that we learn from Jesus that God judges those that reject him. God judges those who reject him. Verse 41, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if even you had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. It's a very strong warning here. What we find here in this passage is, is that Jesus is weeping here. And we find that what we know is that because Jesus is judging, he's teaching us that God does judge us. Not when we die, because we'll get judged there too. But he does judge us while we're still alive here on earth. And for those who reject him, he will judge you. But that judgment in which God does, is he doesn't do it with a sense of like vindictiveness, like you deserve this. He weeps. The only other instance we see God weeping or Jesus weeping is when he, before he raised Lazarus from the dead in, in the Gospel of John. Remember that? He was going to go raise that dude from the dead. But yet he goes into the room and he sees a whole bunch of people crying. And, that, you know, he didn't even go like relax. It will be okay. Let me just take care of this. He didn't even do that. But because he loves them so much, he weeps with them. And it teaches us that no matter what we go through in life, if we're weeping, even though God may know the outcome, he still weeps with you. Hallelujah for that. That's gaining a robust theology of God, knowing that our God will weep with us when we weep. And this is the only other instance we see Jesus weeping. He weeps because he's judging the people of God. It's a prophetic word that he placed upon them and he's saying that you will be destroyed. In Deuteronomy chapter 28 to 32, if you read those chapters, you find that when the people of God are unfaithful to him, one of the ways in how God judges them is that other nations will come and conquer them and kill a lot of their people. That's a way of how God judges them. And we find also that uh, that prophetic word that Jesus gives here in Luke chapter 19, it happened a couple decades after Jesus was resurrected from the dead. In AD 70 or 70 AD, the Roman Empire came into Jerusalem, destroyed people's lives, and they destroyed the temple of God. That was called the second temple. Jewish people, even to this day, they go into their synagogues and they lament the fact that their second temple had been destroyed. They still lament this reality. Jesus prophetically gives the word and saying, I am judging you now and it's breaking my heart. But people will come against you. Every stone will be broken down. The temple will be destroyed. And it did in AD 70. Right? And so we find that God does judge us. Why? Because these people were waiting for God to give them a certain peace. That's, we got to underline that word peace. It appears twice. You see... A lot of us, what kind of peace do you want from God? A lot of you want peace. But the peace that God gives us was very different than the peace that the Jewish people were looking for. The peace that they were looking for was a Messiah to come to defeat the Roman Empire so that Israel can be restored as the greatest kingdom in the world. That was the peace that they were searching for. But that was not the peace that God was offering them. You see, the peace that God was offering them, the shalom that God was offering them was a relationship with him. That no longer do they have to sacrifice an animal anymore to retain that peace with God because of their sins. But they now can have peace with God in a relationship with him through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That was the peace that Jesus was offering them, but they rejected it. And that is the peace that Jesus offers you today. 
What he offers you is not the peace that maybe you want. Because some of you have families and it is chaotic. It is hard. It's like going into a war zone when you go to your family's house. And you just want peace. I get that. Some of you need peace in your marriage right now. Some of you need peace in your stock portfolios. Some of you need peace in certain things in your life, right? You need peace. That's not the peace he offers you. The peace that he offers you is a relationship with him to be by your side. And when he judges you, it is a removal of his presence in your life. Because he says, I will no longer protect you anymore. And that's what his judgment is today. When God judges you, if you reject him, he will remove himself. It's not he's making that decision. You've made a conscious decision to reject God. And so as a result, that God no longer will protect you and he will remove himself from you. And that's when you go through hardships in life, when you go through real deep struggles. There's no hope for that then. Without God's protection, without God's presence being there, God has a potential to bring life into the things that look like death in your life. That's the story of Easter. But the sad reality is, is that when you go through things in life and God is no longer with you because you rejected him, there's no hope. You see, what's hell all about? Hell is a place where God doesn't exist. That's why there's going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth because God can't protect you. Right? And as much as we can experience heaven here on earth, you know, we talk about that. The theological word for that is realized eschatology, where as, because the Holy Spirit lives in us, we can experience and taste heaven here on earth. And we've done that many times. But as much as you can experience a little bit of heaven here on earth, some of you in this room, you can experience a little bit of hell here on earth if you reject God. Jesus will judge you. He'll weep. But he will remove himself from you and you will be open and susceptible to the harms and to the things that people might do against you. And there's no hope for, God, for, for, for there to be redemption because God has left you. So will you not reject God? Will you go to him and realize that God does judge us. Not when we die and meet him. He'll judge us then but he also judges us while we're here on earth. See, this is serious stuff here that God wants you and I to see about him. That God is a just judge. The last thing, fourth thing we learned from Jesus is that God disciplines his people. God disciplines his people. Verse 45, 45. When Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on his word. What was going on in the temple, just to kind of let you know, became like this marketplace. Pharisees were selling livestock. They were selling animals so that people can buy it and then offer it as a sacrifice. They were selling wine, oil, and salt. There were also a place there where they did currency exchanges for Roman currency to the Hebrew shekel because in the law, you have to give your offering in Hebrew shekels, not in Roman currency. And so there was a place for that as well. And it was so corrupt that Jesus uses very strong words. He says, this has become a den of robbers. Because that's exactly what the Pharisees were doing. Because people were coming from Jerusalem and they brought their own animal that they felt didn't have any defect. And they'd bring it into the temple and then the priest would look at it and say, your animal has a defect. Go and buy one at the marketplace. And so they would go and then they would dramatically increase the price of an animal. Why? Because, again, the law of price and demand, right, warrants a high price. And they were literally ripping off their own people to buy animals and to sacrifice to God. 
Gentiles were not allowed to go and worship God even though they wanted to. And so Jesus got so angry, he decided to drive that whole place out and everyone left. And in the other translations in, uh, in, in the Gospels, what do we learn? Jesus makes a whip and he just starts whipping everyone, right? Whipping everyone. And that was his discipline. Some of you in this room, you need to be whipped today. You do. You need to be whipped. There's a discipline in which God gives us. Why does God discipline us? He disciplines us because he loves us. That's why he disciplines us. If he didn't discipline us, he wouldn't love us. As a parent, if you don't discipline your kids and you just let them do whatever they want, that's a very dangerous proposition. Because they would think, well, I can do this and not get in trouble, so then I can do something else and not get in trouble. And it gets worse. And as a parent, we discipline our children because we know that if we don't, then they're going to get to a place where it's going to be really, really bad. We do it because we love them. Why does God choose to discipline you and me? Because he loves us. And why does he discipline us? So that sin doesn't become contagious and affect other areas of our life. If the goal is to isolate the sin, not to let it spread to other places. And you know as well as I do that when, when sin starts to spread like cancer, you know when, when somebody just has cancer in a particular organ of their body, the goal is we got to catch it before it spreads. Because once it spreads, you know this if you're a doctor, it's pretty much over for you. And the goal is that when we sin, that God disciplines us so that he can deal with that, so that it doesn't spread into other areas in our lives. That's why he does. That's why God chooses to discipline you and me so that we can truly learn from God and we don't allow a sin to overcome our lives today. It's an amazing discipline that I wish you would enter into, but many of you reject it. Because what's one of the chief ways in how God disciplines us today? You know what it is? confession of your sins to someone else. That's how God disciplines you and me. You try confessing your sins regularly. You will think twice before you do it again. I guarantee you, man. You're like, oh God, if I do this again, I'm going to have to go tell my buddy again and I did it again. Well, you want to sound like a broken record. You think twice because there's accountability because when two or more gather in the name of Jesus, he'll be there. Not only do you receive forgiveness of that sin, but there's a deeper accountability where your partner can help you to grow in your faith in God. And keep you accountable. And there is a little shame in confessing your sins. Oh, trust me, there is. That's God's discipline today. I, I consider it a gentle discipline, but a discipline that is worth receiving today. You hear me talk about this all the time. Get a soulmate so that you can confess your sins to one another. How important that is for your spiritual journey. Let me just say very simply this. That when you are not confessing your sins to somebody who is alive and well like you, who's breathing the same air that you and I breathe, you are not receiving God's discipline for your life. And you're allowing the sin to spread into other areas in your life. And before you know, know it, something destructive can happen to you. My father died two years ago, uh, back in 2016 of November. And um, I would really prepared for him to pass away. I had been praying for years that God would call him home because uh, he lived in a nursing home for eight years. The last two, two and a half years, I mean, he couldn't speak. He was pretty much paralyzed. Uh, and it was just terrible to see your father like that. And so I just prayed. I said, God, call him home. I know when he gets to heaven, he's going to be able to dance and he's going to be in your presence pain-free. Um, he caught pneumonia. And, you know, if you're really old and you catch pneumonia, it's pretty much the kiss of death. And uh, the doctor said it's any day. The dude lived for two and a half weeks. He fought that thing day in and day out. Doctors were amazed that he was able to survive that long. And I was at a, my son's soccer game and my mom called me on. It was on a Saturday and said, your dad is dead. Come to the hospital. And so I did. 
and I saw him there in his dead state. I thought I was ready for it. I thought I was so ready for that that two weeks after he passed away, I came up and I preached here before you. And as I did that, I just felt like I was like committing like a violent act to my soul. I know I shouldn't have come back. I have come back that quickly. And so I told Kevin, I said, Kevin, you got to preach the rest of the way here. I just can't do it. And so he did. He did. And I think like a couple, three months into it, I started to get really disappointed in myself because it took me longer than I thought. And honestly, I just really believe that I should have gotten over this thing sooner than later. And I didn't know why it was still kind of on me and I was still struggling with his absence in my life. Even though like he'd been absent for so long. But just the fact that he's no longer there anymore was really difficult for me to just kind of get through. And it was okay. It would be all right if it was just that one little isolated thing that I struggled with, right. But there were other things that kind of happened that just, just because of life. And so it was that, and I was still feeling pretty down and down about the whole thing. And, and then, that, and then short, shortly, a few months later, then we just, the church really kind of hit a dip. It, we had a struggle where about anywhere between 30 to 50 people just kind of decided to leave because they no longer aligned with our vision. And that was really hard for me to deal with, honestly. Uh, we struggled at a financial level that we hadn't struggled in a very long time. And I just felt like a failure. Because I'm the senior pastor of the church and it was under my leadership that this happened. And, you know, people leave for whatever reason if they don't align with the vision. That's normal. That happens. But, man, it just re- it wasn't the right time for them to leave when my father just passed away. And so I was in a real dark place. That just took me, like, I was here and it just took me to a different dark place. And I was just trying to figure this out and say, okay, well, how do I just kind of work through this, push through it because I can do it, Right. And then a few months later, my sister and I, we got into a real big fight. My sister Susan lives in the Marcy Projects of Brooklyn. That's where Jay-Z grew up. It's probably one of the worst neighborhoods in Brooklyn. She is living in abject poverty. Her son, Pedro, when he was about a year and a half, he fell out of a building and uh, landed in a dumpster and he got money from the landlord. They put it into a trust fund, it grew, and when he turns 18, he was going to get yearly installments of money. That was going to happen because he turned 18 in October of last year, and as I was, two years ago. And as I was helping her with this whole process, she started accusing me of wanting to steal her money. And listen, I mean, the reason why I struggled with that so much, it wasn't just really what she said, but I felt like a hypocrite. Because here I am saying, hey, we're a church for the misfits. We're a church where we want to serve the poor and the oppressed. I couldn't even serve my own sister without getting into a fight with her. And so that just took me to another dark place. It just was like a deeper, 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 deeper place. And I didn't get out of it. You know how long this thing took me? Two years. It was at the sabbatical that I went on sabbatical and I just had some time to really reflect and rest, get some counseling, connect with some really deep friends of mine. And I came back in October. Nothing really changed, but I just felt the burden lifted off of my shoulders. And I just feel so much lighter these days because of it. The two people who really helped me through it, number one was Pastor Kevin. Of course, you know, I have everyone else in my life that are important that kept me sort of stable, right? My wife was tremendously helpful, other people on staff, some of my other close friends. But two key people really helped me through this, the darkest times. It was Pastor Kevin. Pastor Kevin stepped up every time I said, I need you to step up because I can't do this. And when I went on sabbatical, you guys don't understand how many more hours. He already puts in, you guys don't know how many hours Pastor Kevin works at our church. He almost had to double that when I went on sabbatical. And he was willing to do that and give me some time so I can get away and recharge and rest and experience the beauty of who God is more. And I remember just thanking him for that, just that he was willing to do that for me. And, and uh, 
our church did better without me. That was really sobering, guys. I mean, we took an attendance hit a little bit. But financially, we were like, I mean, we were really, really good. I couldn't believe where we were financially. And I just started to say, like, is that God's way of telling me to leave? <laughs> it did so much better under his leadership than mine. I really appreciated the times when he just allowed me to close his office door and I just sat there with him and I just vented and I allowed myself just to be raw, completely who I am in front of him. And he gave me the space to do that, to vent and then to share his thoughts. It was huge help for me. The other one was my buddy Jeff. You guys know he's, he's one of my soulmates and he lives out in California. He's an officer. I didn't just share with him the sins that I committed. I shared with him everything because this was a dark period. These two years was a dark period in my life. And I share with him, even since I were being tempted, thoughts in my head that I knew wasn't right. I share with him everything. And you know, because he's a cop, he's very inter he interrogates me every time I share. <laughs> and he started saying, okay, well, let's unpack this a little bit more. And he started doing that with me. And I'm telling you, it was a dark place. I really struggled. And there was a point in our time, in our conversation, he said, you got to be careful, Peter. Because you're going to lose everything if you do this. He's like, you're crossing the point of no return. I thanked him so much for that. It was a wake-up call. He was able to endure the darkest times of my life. And he was there journeying with me, helping me through that. And every week it almost felt like God just disciplining me with his love. When I confessed it and shared it. And as a result of it, I come out of this two years later, not like everything is so much better, things have changed, but I come out of it because I've learned truly how to follow God wholeheartedly even though you don't want to do it. It's the only way you're going to know that God's faithful. It's not when God answers your prayers. It's when he doesn't and you're going through the hardships in life and yet you still want to be committed to him every single day. And as you fall, you confess it, experience his discipline as a result of it. You still stay committed to him even though you don't want to stay committed to him. And you see the beauty of who God is. Man, I feel like I can go through anything at this point now because I was able to endure those two years in my life. And I know for some of you, you're just sort of shaky at best with God. And whenever you feel emotionally, you disengage and you walk away. I'm here that God is inviting you today. And all he's offering you is himself. Will you enter into this relationship with him? And even though you don't feel it, even though you don't want to engage with God anymore, because maybe he's disappointed you and he's not aligned with the outcomes that you'd hope he'd do for you in your life, will you still engage with him, surrender yourself, and still follow him wholeheartedly? Jesus was not feeling it when he entered into Jerusalem. He knew he was going to die, but he did it anyway. Why? Because he knew the faithfulness of God. And so may you be disciplined today. May God discipline you in the most loving way he can as you confess your sins to some people. Because a lot of you here, you've been Christians for a long time, and you've never invited anyone to enter into your dark little worlds. And you think you can love God that way, but you can't. Your sin will become a virus infection that will start affecting other places in your life and other people. May you start coming to church on time, preparing your heart and coming to church on Sundays to worship him. Because this is about you giving to God, not about you receiving from him. And as you struggle with your emotions with God, because life is a struggle, that you will see the beauty of his faithfulness in your life. Because if you can see that, 
Ain't nothing getting in the way of your relationship with Jesus. And I hope that happens for you. Let's pray.